The following message is from Bear Creek Church. More information about BCC is available at bearcreekchurch.org. John 16, 12 through 15, Jesus continues saying, I still have many things to say to you, but you cannot bear them now. When the spirit of truth comes, he will guide you into all the truth, for he will not speak on his own authority, But whatever he hears, he will speak, and he will declare to you the things that are to come. He will glorify me, for he will take what is mine and declare it to you. All that the Father has is mine. Therefore, I said that he will take what is mine and declare it to you. This is God's word. Uh, Would you pray with me, please? Father, thank you for such a glorious salvation that Jesus perfectly spoke and accomplished your will, that the Spirit was sent to glorify Jesus, to be our helper. Thank you for the gift of the Spirit. For without him, we would not see your glory in the face of Jesus. Without him, we would not grow in our faith, in our love for Jesus. We pray that the Spirit would be present and active shining the light on Jesus as we open your word. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. You may be seated. Jesus said, I still have many things to say to you. And these words must have been a bit shocking and exciting for these disciples because how many, think of it, how many years... Or how many experiences had they had over the last three years with Jesus? They, they heard him speak with unique authority like no other man. He spoke with saving power, rescuing them from the danger of the storm. He provided impossible needs, feeding the 5,000. He performed miracles and showed that he must be from God opening the eyes of the blind and healing the lame and casting out demons and raising the dead. He forgave sins, which only God can do. He showed tender compassion and a righteous anger. He expounded God's law. He kept God's law. He taught with parables and then explained them to his disciples He declared in his I am statements that he is Yahweh. And now he says, I still have many things to say to you. You can't bear it now. Now, I don't mean any disrespect, but this kind of reminds me of those infomercial guys who describe the the great benefits of a product and then say, but wait, there's more. Jesus, but wait, there's more. What I've told you is great, but there are many more things. And they're so exceedingly wonderful that you'll have to wait because you can't bear them now. Jesus tends to do this. He turned the water into wine at the wedding celebration. And what did the master of ceremonies say? Everyone serves the good wine first and then when people have drunk freely, then the poor wine. But you, you've kept the good wine for now. Jesus, you keep the best for last. 
He's been telling his disciples some pretty wonderful things in this farewell discourse. But then he says something incredible, something that speaks to an amazing privilege that these disciples probably never expected. But how can it get any better? He's already taught about heaven and how to get there. He's taught about the works of his, that his disciples should do. He's taught about prayer, saying that ask anything in my name and I'll give it to you. He's taught them about the Holy Spirit, how he'll comfort them and teach them and cause them to spiritual fruitfulness, how the Spirit will convict the world about sin and righteousness and judgment. And as great as these things are, just wait, there's more. Jesus said, I still have many things to say to you, but you can't bear them now. When the Spirit of truth comes, he will guide you into all the truth, for he will not speak on his own authority, but whatever he hears, he will speak, and he will declare to you the things that are to come. The very, the very oracles of God. I'm sending the Holy Spirit to be your helper. And he's going to give you all the truth about me. This is what Jesus is saying to these disciples. And, it, and he's saying it's not just the Spirit speaking alone. Look at verse 15. Jesus says, all that the Father has is mine. And then he, the Holy Spirit, will take what is mine, Jesus's, and declare it to you. This Trinitarian prophetic word. You will be given the very words of the Father, Son, and Spirit. Things that are too much for you to bear right now. The Spirit is going to disclose these things to you. Now, did they get it? Did they even understand what Jesus was saying here? Since the Holy Spirit hadn't come upon them yet, I'm assuming that they're still a bit dull. They're cocking their heads, wondering what Jesus is talking about. But eventually they'll understand. Even if they, you don't comprehend it, it's always exciting to realize there's something more for you to know. There's something more for you to know. The realization that when we're in heaven, that, the, that we still won't know everything. This was an exciting realization for me. This is exciting. We're still going to be, we're still human. We're still going to be learning and exploring and discovering. And that is an exciting realization because I think this is why so many people assume that heaven's going to be boring. They're going to assume that they're going to have this full knowledge and they'll know everything, and then what? It does sound boring. But when there's always something that we can discover and learn and see, that's exciting. So when the Holy Spirit is your guide and Jesus says it'll be even better and that he'll give them all the truth, they didn't comprehend it, but they must have thought, this is this sounds exciting. What would be revealed to them? Well, from our perspective, 
we know that the Old Testament is wonderful, that it's a treasure. It's God's word. This is what they had. This is what they possessed. But we also know, we know from our perspective, there's more. There's a New Testament that helps to explain what the Old Testament was getting at. And these disciples will actually write the rest of the story. And the Holy Spirit will guide them into all the truth and cause them to remember everything that Jesus said. Again, let's remember the context and that Jesus is speaking to his 11 disciples who will become his appointed apostles and they have, they have a unique role, one that is different from ours. We can look at this, this passage and we can recognize that, that we are indwelt by the same Holy Spirit. We can rightly assume that because he is the spirit of truth, and because he is our helper as well, that he will, like, he will open our eyes to the truth. He will open our eyes to the truth of God's word. And we should understand that, that any of the beliefs that we have that are actually right, that the reason we rightly see them is because the Holy Spirit has guided us, has taught us this. Paul in 1 Corinthians 2.14 tells us that the natural person does not accept the things of the Spirit of God, for they are folly to him. And he is not able to, to understand them because they are spiritually discerned. So we're, we're not right about the things that we're right about because we're smart. We're not right because we're wise and insightful. It's not our human nature that accepts the spiritual truth. It's not a natural thing. It's a supernatural thing. It's only because of the work of the Spirit. It's spiritually discerned. You are not a Christian because you just naturally saw it while others did not. No, the only explanation for your salvation is that the Spirit of God intervened and graciously chose to open your spiritual eyes so that you would see, so that you would understand, so that you would ultimately believe. This is a true principle that we could draw from this text, but it's not the right interpretation of this text. Jesus isn't talking to us. He's talking to the disciples who are with him. He's talking about something that will be a unique work of the Spirit in their apostolic ministry. Jesus is telling them that the Holy Spirit is coming to guide them into all the truth. All the truth concerning himself and what they're not yet able to bear. Jesus is the truth, and the Holy Spirit is going to give them everything that they need to teach and to write the New Testament. So, so they are the audience, and they meet certain qualifications that we cannot and never can. They are his chosen disciples appointed for this particular work. They were eyewitnesses to Jesus, the apostles who were appointed to be the foundation of the church. And so through them, God's prophetic, authoritative word is complete. 
complete. And this is important for us to know because your Mormon neighbor may be very nice. But Joseph Smith in the 19th century didn't meet the qualifications either. He claimed another revelation from God. And a massive religion has followed after a lie. And we know it's a lie because he's not an apostle. He's not an apostle because he's not an eyewitness. He wasn't there. Jesus wasn't speaking to him. He's not commissioned by Jesus for this work. And we need to realize the contradiction here as well. We need to realize that if Mormon is accepted as true, then we must say Jesus is not. Because Jesus said to these specific disciples that when the spirit of truth comes, he will guide them into all the truth. Not some of the truth and then some more contradictory stuff 1,800 years later to a guy in New York. And I don't mean to pick on just one cult, because this really is the claim that they all have in common. Every single one, a claim to revelation truth or authority that rivals the Bible, whether it's in a, a, a person or what he writes. It's all about authority. Authority is the issue. A person's words or writings that are said to be of equal or greater authority to that of the Bible. And this is why, frankly, I get bothered and concerned when so many Christians use language that give this kind of impression. Speaking of a new word from the Lord or a prophetic word. Or even saying something as simple as, God told me to tell you. If someone says, God told me, and then they give you a message that's not scripture, then aren't they actually doing what the cults do? They don't mean it that way. They, they, they wouldn't say, they wouldn't say, but the implication is, I need more. The New Testament wasn't enough. So God gave me something else. And along these lines, another pet peeve, and I'm going to step on toes here. Don't read Jesus calling. If you've, if you've looked at it, it's presented as if like auto writing through the author and this is Jesus speaking to you. Don't read books that come across like Jesus giving you some more words. If you truly want the words of Jesus, read the Gospels. And this isn't to say that God doesn't lead us or guide us in life's decisions, or that he doesn't prompt us to pray or, or minister to someone. Of course he does. But this isn't another word. And we need to be careful not to describe it in that way because it gives the sense of authority. God told me that sort of way because that can give a wrong impression. It can, it can be very manipulative, when it applies to another person, because what are we to do when someone says, you know, God told me to buy, that you need to buy my house. He didn't tell me. Am I disobedient to God if I don't? God has spoken to us through his son. 
And his son said that the Holy Spirit would guide these first century eyewitnesses, his appointed apostles, into all the truth. And because of this, we have access to everything that we need for life and godliness. People who get bored with their Bibles need something else. And they're in danger of hearing and believing and following lies and manipulations. And I get it. I like new things. I like the next, I get excited about the next iPhone, new technology, new discoveries. It's exciting. But Jesus said to these disciples that it would be all the truth. And so there's no reason for us to go looking for another word from the Lord outside of our Bibles. The more that Jesus is speaking of here is really the New Testament. And we see three categories hinted at in our text. We see history, and we see doctrine, and we see prophecy. Jesus is no myth. He is a real, historic Person. And so when he says the Spirit will take what is mine, we understand that the Spirit will take Jesus' earthly experiences, his history, and he will declare this to these eyewitnesses, causing them to truthfully remember. In chapter 14, Jesus also said, the Holy Spirit will teach you all things and bring to your remembrance all that I have said to you. Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, Acts, our history. God's word is the most accurate history there is because it doesn't depend upon human memories, but upon the spirit of truth who would come and guide them in telling them what Jesus did and what Jesus said. Now, not that you would ever want to do this, but But could you, years after hearing this sermon, write it out word for word from memory? Impossible. Again, not that you would want to, but it's impossible. We can can be confident, though. We can be confident that the history that we possess in the New Testament is perfect. It's perfect because of the Holy Spirit who, who brought each detail to their minds. God's word declares that all scripture is breathed out by God. Martin Lloyd-Jones commented that the Bible plainly shows that my comfort and consolation lie in facts. The fact that God has done certain things and that they have literally happened The God in whom I believe is the God who could and did divide the Red Sea and the River Jordan. If the facts recorded in the Bible are not true, then I have no hope and no comfort. For we are not saved by ideas, but by facts, by events. Buddhism, Hinduism, and other faiths rest upon theories and ideas In the Christian faith alone, we are dealing with facts. An idea of a Jesus-like figure will not save you. There is no message of Christianity without the actual historic life of Christ. And the truthfulness of the details are significant because if Jesus 
wasn't miraculously born of a virgin, then, then he was born into sin. And a sinner's death on a cross can't atone for your sins. The historic facts are important because if Jesus didn't rise bodily from the dead, then, then we follow a lie. And God did not vindicate Jesus as righteous and we're left in our sins. The New Testament contains history. And it also contains doctrine. The historical record of Jesus would mean nothing without the doctrinal explanation. Why did Jesus offer himself to die? What did he actually accomplish on the cross? How do we, how do we benefit from this? How has God saved us? All of these questions are answered in doctrine. The answers were, they were too much for these disciples at this time. They needed the Holy Spirit to guide them into all the truth. J. Gresham Machen wrote, Christ died, that is history. Christ died for our sins, that is doctrine. Without these two elements joined in an absolutely indissoluble union, there is no Christianity. The Holy Spirit gave them the details of Jesus' history and the significance of what he accomplished for us. Our faith is rooted in history. But it's also more than history because we're not saved through mere facts. The history tells us that, that God came in Jesus, but the significance is that God is revealed. Because of Jesus, we know the love of God. We know that he is just and compassionate and merciful. History tells us that, that Jesus died, but everyone dies. The question is, why did he die? In the moment, the disciples couldn't bear these kinds of things. They were incapable of comprehending it. But when the spirit of truth comes, then they will not only know, but they will teach us about the significance of Christ's death in the, in the various epistles of the New Testament. The Holy Spirit declares the history of Jesus and doctrine and also prophecy as he says that the Spirit will declare the things to come. And so we read about what was to come in their lifetime and the destruction of Jerusalem in AD 70. We read about future events for us recorded in the book of Revelation and First and Second Thessalonians and elsewhere. We read about what will happen when Christ returns? What's going to take place at the final judgment? Where are we going to be in the eternal state? We read about these kinds of things to come. Jesus said that the Holy Spirit would guide the apostles into all the truth. And we hold the evidence of this in our New Testaments. As God breathed his word through these men as they spoke from God, being carried along, guided by the Holy Spirit. And Matthew Henry points out that a guide has two tasks. The first is to ensure that his charges do not wander or become lost. And this assures us that what they taught and wrote was without error. And the second, a guide must ensure that his charges 
arrive at their destination. And so the Spirit causes the apostles to know and record all the truth. And oh, what a blessing it is for us that Jesus sent the Holy Spirit to guide these disciples into all the truth as they wrote the New Testament so that we might have the complete and inerrant word of God. We don't need anything else. Unlike many centuries of church history, we have our own personal copies of the Bible. Unlike many people in our day who are living under persecution, we have Bibles sitting out on shelves and coffee tables and on our phones. And the concluding guilt trip is easy. We need to pick up our Bibles and read them. We need to pray that the Holy Spirit will now guide us into all the truth about Jesus, that we might grow in our love for him, especially now, especially in a day when we're tempted and told to just listen to your heart and follow your heart instead of Jesus. When we're tempted to justify divisions instead of our common love for Jesus. When we're tempted to, because we're so enlightened and to compromise clear and unchanging truth of God's word in the name of, of cultural enlightenment, areas regarding marriage and sexuality and gender. The answer to these and many more problems is found in going to God's word and in it pursuing a love for Jesus. In this passage, we read, that the Spirit does not speak to or point to himself. We're reminded of the perfect unity within the Godhead and that Jesus is about the Father's will and the Spirit is about glorifying Jesus. In verse 14, Jesus says that the Spirit will glorify me. And so I want to just think on that topic, learning about the Spirit, that the Spirit will glorify Christ. And I want to think about Three ways that the Spirit does this. First is the Spirit's Christ-centered witness to the world. True spirituality or a true witness of the Holy Spirit will always glorify Jesus. His righteous life, his sin-atoning death on the cross, his, his bodily resurrection, his exaltation to glory. This witness will always be clear. And if it's not, if the focus of a religious group detracts from Jesus or ignores his deity, or if it will not acknowledge that he is the exclusive way to God, then this, this is the spirit of Antichrist. In John's first epistle, he says a, a lot about the spirit of Antichrist, not talking about some ultimate figure, the Antichrist, but the spirit of Antichrist that existed at the beginning of the church. And he wrote, every spirit that does not confess Jesus is not from God. And that's loaded. Jesus, the historic Jesus, Jesus that the apostles describe doctrinally who he is. 
And so we hear Mormons and Jehovah Witnesses using the name Jesus, but that's another Jesus. That's not the biblical Jesus. So every spirit that does not confess the true Jesus is not from God. This is the spirit of Antichrist. Jesus tells us that the Spirit, the Holy Spirit, will glorify him. He will not detract from Jesus. He will always exalt him as God. He will always point to Jesus and Jesus alone for our salvation. He will always agree with the exclusivity of Jesus' claim, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. So religions that have great benefits of peace and and tranquility and morals and great family values, enlightenment, even speaking of Jesus positively, yet denying his deity, denying his exclusivity. They may be nice, but the Holy Spirit is not a part of them. And the spirit that is present is the spirit of Antichrist. Second, the Spirit's Christ-centered focus with the church. The first principle has more to do with identifying false religions. And this has to do with recognizing true Spirit-filled worship and activity within the church. When the focus of a church or a ministry is placed on the Spirit instead of Jesus, and especially His sin-atoning death on the cross, then we should be concerned. And this isn't to say that we, we ignore the Spirit, that we don't ask for His help, that we don't study God's Word to know Him. But when we do know Him, we'll find that His aim is to glorify Jesus and not Himself. So to rightly love and honor the Spirit, to truly know and appreciate his, his presence and activity is to admire and grow in our love for Jesus. And if this isn't happening, then we should conclude that the Spirit is not active. And we should plead for him to show us Jesus. If the focus of a church or its teaching is all about the Spirit and doing and seeing miraculous things, and it's not about pointing to Jesus then we should conclude that this is not the Spirit of God that's active. The evidence of a Spirit-filled service is that it points to Jesus. The evidence of a Spirit-filled life is one that treasures and follows and worships Christ. I love this illustration given by J.I. Packer. Packer describes approaching this cathedral at night where the floodlights illuminate this large stained glass window. And in seeing this, he realizes, you know, the spirit is like a floodlight. Here's what he wrote. When the floodlighting is well done, the floodlights are so placed that you do not see them. You're not, in fact, supposed to see where the light is coming from. What you are meant to see is just the building on which the floodlights are trained. The intended effect is to make it visible when otherwise it would not be seen for the darkness and to maximize its dignity by throwing all its details into relief so that you see it properly. So floodlights work properly only when you're not looking at them. 
but at the object that they're bathing in light. What happens when you, when you look into a floodlight is that you're blinded. And this happens spiritually when our focus is not on Jesus, who is the Spirit's aim. Packer goes on to write, It is as if the Spirit stands behind us, throwing light over our shoulder on Jesus, who stands facing us. The Spirit's message to us is never, look at me, listen to me, come to me, get to know me, but always look at him, see his glory, listen to him, hear his word, go to him, have life, get to know him, taste his gift of joy and peace. And a third principle has to do with us as individuals. The Spirit's Christ-centered purpose in us. We need to read God's Word. We need to pursue right doctrine, right theology. And this pursuit isn't about intellect. It's not about getting all puffed up with what we know. Instead, our purpose is to better know the Word of God for the sake of better loving and appreciating and, and following Jesus. Any good and healthy human relationship works this way. A, a good marriage will lead to, you know, I should know this person I'm married to. I should be a student of this person so that I know who they are, what their history is, what their experiences have been, what they like, what they don't like. I should know them. And this is what Bible study is. Knowing God, knowing his story, what he's done, more specifically what he's done for us, what he what he wants for us, what brings him pleasure, what displeases him. And for this, we need the Holy Spirit. He is the one who opens our eyes to God's truth. He is the one who, who points us to Jesus. So in your personal studies of God's word, there are many areas of theology. There are many topics of interest. But they all have something to do with Jesus. The whole counsel of God ultimately concerns Jesus. Jesus, think, you know this, on the road to Emmaus, talking to these disciples, he begins with Moses and all the prophets, and he interpreted to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. And now that the New Testament is complete, which which rightly interprets the old, we have this same perspective. We see that all of Scripture ultimately has to do with Jesus. And this is what I love about the curriculum that, that we use here and teach our, our kids. It's not just about these Old Testament stories and morals. Instead of settling for some moral conclusion that any, any fable could tell, lessons of of be brave, be courageous, be, be share, be faithful and true. We see a picture of Jesus. Jesus who is our righteousness. Jesus who is the hero. Jesus who, unlike us, is ultimately brave and courageous and faithful and true. So before you go to God's word, 
Remember the work of the Spirit. Remember his role. Remember that he, he glorifies Jesus, that he is our help, he is our guide. So when you go to God's word, before you go to God's word, pray. Pray and ask that the Holy Spirit will glorify Jesus in your reading. Pray that he will guide you into all the truth about Jesus. Why? Well, because you love him. Because you want to know him. Because you want to see him and be like him. Through God's word and through prayer, we receive the ministry of the Holy Spirit as he shines the light on Jesus. He, the Holy Spirit, is our helper and his purpose is to glorify Christ, who is, who is eternal life and joy. Let's pray. Father, we praise you for your glorious grace. You've given us your Son. You have sovereignly opened our eyes by the work of the Spirit, causing us to see Jesus for who he truly is. What a gift. What a gift that you've given to us in your word. It is complete. It is perfect, trustworthy. It is without error. You have breathed it out by the Holy Spirit, carrying along these human authors to remember and to write all the truth of your revelation. So help us, Lord. Help us to love your word because we love you. And we want to know you through Jesus. Help us to go to your word and pray for your spirit to continually open our eyes to glorious things in it. So that we might glorify you as we're conformed to the image of Christ. Lord, create a hunger in us, we pray in Jesus' name.